Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Pursuit. Well, life is filled with questions, right? Life is filled with important questions, and life is filled, of course, with trivial questions. Questions that are trivial in nature would be, you know, I had a choice to make when I woke up today. Am I going to wear my blue shirt or am I going to wear my gray shirt? Maybe you have a choice every single morning. Are you going to use hazelnut or French vanilla in your coffee? Are you going to take I-95 or, turn, or the turnpike down to work? Uh, tonight, you know, are you going to watch reruns of Blue Bloods or Everybody Loves Raymond? You know, the choice is about the clothes that we wear on our backs, the coffee cream that we use every morning or what route we're taking to work or or, you know, uh, what TV shows we watch, all those questions really don't matter at the end of the day. But there are important questions in life. Important questions, by the way, that a lot of people are trying to find answers to. Questions like, is there a God? Now, you're here today, you're in church, uh, you probably fought some traffic trying to get into the parking lot today. And so I would venture to say 99% of you believe that there's a God. But don't you know that in our world today, there's millions of people that don't even know the answer to that question? Is there a God? If so, how can I know him? Some people ask, who am I? You know, why was I created? Why am I here on this, this planet in the middle of a vast galaxy? What should be my primary pursuit in life? I could go on and on, but all of these are extremely vital questions that everybody should answer in their lives. So when it comes to the important questions of life, like, for example, what should be my primary purpose or my primary pursuit in life? When it comes to the answers to those kind of questions, I believe that the Westminster Shorter Catechism, thank you to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, back in 1646 and 1647, they answered that question. They hit the nail right on the head. They said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so is there a God? Yeah, absolutely. How do you know? Because we know from the general revelation of creation and the specific revelation of his word. There is a God. All right, well, how can I know him? You can know him only one way, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Every other religion, eh, wrong answer, Jesus Christ, the only way. You say, that's narrow-minded. Welcome to Christianity. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one. Please say no one. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way. You say, why is he the only way? Because he's the only one who died for your sins and my sins and bled out on the cross and rose again the third day. No other religious leader did that. Jesus is the only way to know the true and living God. Well, somebody says, well, who am I? And I would say, you are the Imago Dei. In Latin, you have been created in God's image. You're something else. You're special. You are absolutely awesome. I'm looking at a bunch of 
awesome people this afternoon. Why? Because you're created in the image of God. Now, you may and I may be unworthy, but that doesn't mean we're worthless. You see, there is a big problem with an evangelical Christianity and a misunderstanding, a distinction between those two words. Unworthy does not mean worthless. All of us are unworthy because we're all sinners. That's why we need to be saved by grace. But ladies and gentlemen, there is nobody sitting here today who is worthless. No, you were made, I was made in the image of God. Therefore, you and I are priceless. No matter what your socioeconomic background, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter how much money you have in the bank, listen, no matter what religion you ascribe to, every single person on the planet is priceless because they're all made in God's image. That's the message that our world right now, specifically the United States of America, in places like Charlottesville, that's the message they need to hear. How dare anybody say, because of the color of my skin, I'm better than somebody else. Shame on you. Shame on you. We're all equal before God, all created in his image, and we ought to love one another as Christ has loved us. One of my prayers in the beginning of this church was, God, would you please help our church Man, to just be uh, colorful. And look what he did. You know why? Because we all love each other as Christ loves the church, no matter what's going on in our lives. That's the way the family of God should be. And so somebody says, well, what should be the primary pursuit of my life? There it is. Man's chief end, glorify God and enjoy him for." Ever. You say, how do you know that's true? It comes straight from the word of God. God said through Isaiah, bring all who claim me as their God, here it is, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. And so you were made for God's glory. I was made for God's glory. So here's a, here's a thought. Why don't we live for him? Why don't we spend our lives uh, living for the one who created us in our mother's womb. Now, sadly, most people do not live for the Lord. Have you noticed? Sadly, most people engage in the trivial pursuit of self-gratification. Their lives are all about the three most important people. You've heard me say it. Me, myself, and I. You see, but the saints that emerge from the tribulation period that we're going to read about in chapter 15. They have a different testimony. The tribulation saints, when they stand before the, the throne of God, they're going to know that they gave their all to the essential pursuit of glorifying God. They're going to know that while they're standing before God in heaven. Let's read about it. Look at verse 1. And then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, verse 2, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also, here it is, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, that's the tribulation saints, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. 
So if you're taking notes, after pursuing God's glory on the earth, the tribulation saints will stand before him in heaven. Now before they arrive on heaven's shore, you need to know that they uh, will endure horrific storms here on earth. By way of review, the tribulation saints. Okay, so we, we believe, I personally am convinced by the scriptures that the bride of Christ will be taken out of this place before the wrath of God comes during the last seven years of history as we know it, called the rapture of the church. The harpazo, the catching up. In the Latin Vulgate, it's the raptus from where we get the word rapture. Okay, so we're gone, but here's what, here's what we need to know. Millions of people are gonna come to Christ during the tribulation period. And they're called tribulation saints. And they're gonna turn to Christ either from the witness of the 144,000 or the two witnesses or the three angels, somehow, some way, they're gonna hear the gospel, they're gonna come to Christ, and at that point, they will be considered fugitives. Why? Because there is a global government that is opposed to God that's led by the coming Antichrist. And so, the, so these tribulation saints are going to be considered fugitives. They're going to have to live underground. They're going to have to buy and sell through the black market. They're going to constantly be looking over their shoulder. They're not going to know who they can trust. And every time they share Christ, every time they minister, they're going to do so at the risk of their lives. And so during the great tribulation, what you need to know is that these tribulation saints, in chapter 15, every single one of them will be killed. Now, don't confuse these people with the 144,000. They're also tribulation saints, but remember from two weeks ago, I think, the 144,000 will actually survive all the hell on earth and get through the seven years and see Jesus literally coming back, and they and their flesh and bone bodies will walk into the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ in their human bodies. That's the 144,000. These are the tribulation saints, and every single one of them in chapter 15 is killed, either by the Antichrist government or by the cataclysmic events that are coming down upon the world during that last seven years. And so that's the bad news. They're going to die. The good news, as we said last week, to be absent from the body means to be present with whom? The Lord. And so when they take their last breath on the earth, it'll be their first breath in heaven, and they will be standing there in heaven. Where will they stand specifically? Look at verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. And so John, in his apocalyptic vision, sees them standing by this sea of glass before God's throne. And so here, here's the whole picture. After all the turbulence that they experience on the earth, now they're standing in heaven, experiencing God's perfect peace, standing beside a sea that is as smooth as glass. Now, we're reintroduced to the sea of glass here in chapter 15 because John actually already introduced us to the sea of glass back in chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but if you were with us in chapter 4, uh, specifically um, in verse 6, um, John tells us that he saw the sea of glass and it looked like crystal. That's interesting to me. So in chapter 4, the sea of glass, John says it's clear as crystal, but now in chapter 15, it has a different look. Did you see that? Look at verse 2 again. 
And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, here it is, mingled with what? Fire. And so fire, oftentimes in the Bible, is a symbol of God's judgment. And so right now, you and I have been alerted to the fact that God, a righteous, holy God, is about to act in judgment once again upon the earth. What is his judgment going to look like in the context of, of our study? Look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. The word plague there does not mean like a, 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 a long month after month, year after year disease that eats away the body. No, the original language, the word plague there means sudden impact. So something horrific suddenly occurs. And so seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, this is interesting, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so when we get to verse 7, we're going to find out that the seven plagues are actually the seven bowls of wrath that are coming down upon a wicked world. By way of review, during the tribulation period, there are three sets of judgments that come down upon the world. You guys remember this? There's seven seal judgments. And then there's seven trumpet judgments. And then now there's seven bowls of wrath, uh, bowl judgments. And they're going to come down specifically in chapter 16. They're described, and they are absolutely horrible. And somebody says, well, why would God do that? I thought God was a loving God. What's going on with all this wrath? Why does God send judgment to the world? Here's why. If you're with me, say amen. Because God is a just judge. You see, God is not just a God of love. God is a God of justice. And guess what? Sin must be paid for. Right? The, the wages of sin is death. Right there in black and white. It's always been God's decree. The wages of sin is death. And so... If you do the crime, you got to do the time. And so what would you think of a judge who's sitting there on his bench, and here comes a rapist, accused rapist, and he's found guilty of rape, and the woman that he raped is in the audience, and she's crying. And what would you do if the judge said, oh, you know, it's okay. Just go hug her and make up. We'll, 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 we'll see you later. What would you do, Honestly. You would do whatever you can do to get that judge disbarred and no longer being a judge, right? Why? Because we expect our judges to be honest, and we expect our judges to execute judgment. Why would we think anything less of God? And so what's going on on the earth during the last three and a half years? Well, you have a global government that hates God. You have a global government that's murdering millions of people because they won't take a mark in their hand or on their forehead. You have a global government that is the most oppressive government making the Nazis look like Sunday school. You have a global government that is the worst, most oppressive, most wicked government right there. And so, of course, a just judge is going to pour out seven bowls of wrath upon the earth right before Jesus comes back. The tribulation saints will be alerted to that judgment because the crystal sea will turn fiery red, an indicator of God's judgment. 
Now, before we go on to verse 3, I love this. Did you guys notice that all the tribulation saints are going to be given harps? Did you see that? I like this. Look, look at the end of verse 2. So there they are, millions of these men and women, tribulation saints, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, the word harp in the original language does not necessarily mean a large harp that you would see like in an orchestra setting. No, it simply means stringed instrument. And so each of the, of the tribulation saints are going to receive a stringed instrument from the Lord. Now, when you really dig it down into the Greek, you do your hours of study and you exegete that word, what you find out is that each tribulation saint will be given an electric guitar in heaven. <laughs> and they won't even need a plug-in. Why? Because the atmosphere in heaven is absolutely electric. And so they're just going to jam for the Lord, right? Now, before I get struck by lightning, I'll have to get back to rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay. We don't know what kind of stringed instrument it will be. But here's what we do know. They are going to worship and glorify God with all their hearts. Heaven is a place of praise and worship and party and festivity and celebration and joy and happiness. Voices will be singing. Instruments will be playing, whatever kind of instruments they may be. And everybody will be glorifying the Lord who deserves our praise. I'm, I'm very fascinated by the fact that there won't be any preaching in heaven. There's nothing in the Bible that says there's going to be preaching in heaven, but there is a lot of praising in heaven. And so guys like me, when we get up there, we're going to have to find a new job. <laughs> but guys like Aaron and the worship team, they get to do what they do forever and ever and ever, and we'll all join them as a family of God. I hope you'll be with us. All together, can you imagine how awesome it's going to be? All the turbulence, all the heartache, all the sorrow, gone forever. There we are. We see Jesus Christ. He's there. No more faith. Now our faith is sight. And we praise and glorify him with all of our might. It's something to look forward to. Now, they're going to sing two songs. Look at verse 3. It says, and they sing the song... Number one, of Moses, the servant of God, and the song, two songs, the song of the Lamb. Now, stop right there because I want to give you this, this point. The tribulation saints are going to glorify God with two songs, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And so the first song, the song of Moses, you don't have to turn there, it can be found in Exodus chapter 15. And so get the picture, after the Lord parts the Red Sea, after he leads his people out of their bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea on their way, hopefully, to the promised land, after later on God uh, crushes the Egyptian army by bringing the waters back to their place, the next day after the children of Israel see all the bodies of their enemies washing up on shore, what happened? Moses and the children of Israel, they broke out into a song. They began 
to praise the Lord. They began to rejoice and to, and to celebrate. I'm just going to read you a couple lyrics from the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. This is what they're singing, and I won't sing because I can't sing. I'll just say it to you. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, and on and on. They continue to sing and play their instruments before the Lord on the shores of the Red Sea. The Song of Moses is the first song the tribulation saints will sing when they're in heaven. And the second song they're going to sing is the Song of the Lamb and Praise the Lord, we have the lyrics right here in verses 3 and 4. Now, everybody look at me real quick. Who are they singing to? It's called the song of the, who's the lamb? Okay, so there he is. They're standing behind, by the crystal sea. There's Jesus. They're singing to him. Look at the lyrics of what they say. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God. The Almighty. There it is again, over and over and over in the Bible. Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty. So don't answer your door this Saturday. <laughs> Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You can answer your door if you're equipped to witness to them. Verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And so they're singing to the Lamb and they're declaring, you're the Lord God Almighty, uncreated Son of God. And not only that, but you have become the king of the nations, not just the king in heaven. But the king here on this earth, right here, that we're living on right now. And not only that, all nations are going to come and they're going to glorify you. And so, once again, two songs. Song of Moses, Song of the Lamb. The Song of Moses, when originally sung by Moses and the children of Israel, was the first recorded song in your Bible. The Song of the Lamb, here in Revelation 15, is the last recorded song in your Bible. The Song of Moses was sung on the shores of the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb will be sung on the shores of the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was sung by those who were delivered from Pharaoh's army. The Song of the Lamb will be sung by those who will be delivered from the Antichrist's army. The Song of Moses uh, was sung by those who hoped to one day get into the Promised Land, but they sinned and they missed out. As the people of God, you can sin and you can miss out on God's will for your life. But the Song of the Lamb, hey, that will be sung by people who will actually enter into the promised land. It's called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this. I can't wait until Revelation chapter 21 and 22. When there's a new heavens and a new earth, that's going to be absolutely amazing when that happens. But you know what? I'm just as excited about the thousand years talked about in Revelation chapter 20 called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this planet. 
And did you know that he's not just going to be the king of heaven? One day he's going to be the king of heaven and earth. And this is where a lot of Christians divide. But you need to know the Bible says this. Look at Isaiah, 700 years before Christ predicted, for unto us a child is born and a son is given. That's called the first coming. You'll probably have a Christmas card sent to you in December with that phrase on it. But as often you see in prophetic literature, Old and New Testament, thousands of years or sometimes a little, a little space in the scriptures. And so for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, first coming, here's the second coming, and the government will be on his shoulder. I mean, are you tired of your government? No, don't answer that. I'm sorry. Um, are you tired of, of government in general that's corrupt? Yes or no? Absolutely. We're all, we all head up to here with corrupt government. Well, guess what? In that day, when Jesus comes back, the government's going to be on his shoulders. That's some good shoulders. And in that day, his name is going to be called, you guys can read it out loud. Go ahead. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. There it is again. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government, Jesus' government, and the peace, there will be no end. Here it is. And on the throne of David. It's the Davidic covenant. I think it's 2 Samuel chapter 7 being established on the earth. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's not the kingdom of heaven up there. It's the kingdom promised on earth to Israel. So Messiah is coming as the son of David. He's going to rule over David's kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Somebody says, really? Come on. Jesus is coming back. How do you know? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And there's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have already been literally fulfilled in history. Why do we think this one will not be literally fulfilled in history? It's coming to a theater near you. Look at what Daniel says about the millennial reign of Christ. To him, the Messiah was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what they're singing about on the shore of the Crystal Sea. The tribulation saints and John sees it in his apocalyptic vision but now he gets another vision. Look at verses 5 through 8 in the shortest chapter in Revelation. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. So I don't know if you know this, but there's a tabernacle of God in heaven. It has a holy of holies, and it's opened up, and John sees it. Verse 6, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Please notice that these sinless angels are clothed in pure, bright linen. In other words, these holy, sinless angels are still holy and they're still sinless even though they're about to get real violent. 
Ladies and gentlemen, passivism does not equate to being a Bible believer. Don't misunderstand the Bible and become a pacifist because if you are a pacifist, then you're not believing in what the whole counsel of the Bible says. Sometimes it's right to get violent. Sometimes it's right, or always right, Romans 13, for a government to protect its citizens by making sure it's powerful enough to protect its citizens. That's why I thank God for every man and woman who wears a uniform and calls themselves a police officer. That's why I thank God for every... And we are going to right now clap for our police officers. But let's not forget that we also thank God for every man and woman who has served at, or is serving in one of the branches of our armed services. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if you really realize how grateful we are that we can go to bed and we can go to sleep and we know that if we dial 911 within five minutes, we got a guy or a woman who will be violent for us And yet, that's the right thing to do. You see, that's what these angels are doing. They're pure, they're sinless, they're righteous, and they're getting violent. Why? Because justice has to be executed upon the crimes of humanity. Now look at verse 7. And one of the four living creatures, that's the, the beautiful angels around God's throne, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, so much so that no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And so everybody please look at me. Just like waiters carry out trays of food from a kitchen, and distribute that food to the customers in the restaurant in the same way seven angels in the future, right before Jesus comes back, are going to come out of the sanctuary of heaven holding seven bowls of wrath. And they're going to serve it to a Christ-rejecting, wicked world. For those at this point who have uh, something in their hand or their forehead and who've been worshiping, the global dictator, if they ask themselves, what's being served today? What's on tap today? The wrath of God will come down. And ladies and gentlemen, you do not want to be here for that. And you don't have to be here for that. Because if I said it and I said it and I've said it, Jesus Christ loves you so much, he already took the wrath of God fully for you and me if we'll just surrender to him as Lord of our lives. And so, why in the world does God punish this world at the end time? Because the world's primary pursuit has always been, look, please look, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's always been the same. Generation after generation, ever since the fall of mankind, it's always been the same three things. Lust of the flesh, 
lust of the eyes, pride of life. Generation after generation. And so the question is, what is your primary pursuit in life? And some people would say this. If you ask them, to be honest, what's your primary pursuit in life? If they were honest, they would say, my sexual gratification. And so I go from person to person to person, and I violate people who have been made in the image of God. Well, why do you do that? If they're honest, they'd say, for my own selfish gratification. It's called the lust of the flesh. Other people, you ask them, what's your primary pursuit in life? And they would say, well, it's all about my material wealth. And so I buy, I buy, I hoard, I hoard, I keep buying more stuff, trying to fill that void. Why do you do that? If they're honest, they'd have to admit, for my own selfish gratification, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, you ask other people, they would say my primary pursuit is all about my status, how people view me. And so I'm going to keep climbing the corporate ladder. I'm going to keep kicking in the teeth. Anybody who tries to get in my way, it's all about me and my status. You say, why? And if they were honest, they'd have to admit, for my own selfish gratification, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and guess what? The wrath of God comes. And the sanctuary of heaven is filled with the glory of God because God's not doing anything wrong. He's doing what's right as a just judge. Now, shouldn't we be different as believers in Jesus Christ? Shouldn't? That was a question you guys can answer. Let me try that again. Shouldn't we have a different testimony as believers in Jesus Christ? Yes. What should be our primary pursuit? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it, right there. And that should be reflected, listen, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Here's, I'm going to dare you to do something. I hope everybody takes me up on this dare. I'm going to dare you tomorrow morning before your feet hit the ground to pray this prayer to the Lord or something like this prayer. Father, I pray that every thought I think, every word I say, every deed I do will all be for your glory. Amen. Did you know in the power of the Holy Spirit you could actually make it 24 hours and every thought you think, every word you say, every deed you do can all be for God's glory? That could happen. You say, no way, there's no way it could happen. It can happen with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in you by the Holy Spirit. I'm not preaching sinless perfection. I know we all fail. But what I'm saying is with God's help, we can live for his glory and we can enjoy him forever. And I'm going to leave you with two verses and then we're done. What should we be doing as Christians? We should be living for the glory of God. Why? Because Paul said to the church of Corinth, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Not only that, we should enjoy God forever. Why? Because the psalmist said to the Lord, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, look at this, is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. And so people are like, man, give me more alcohol. Give me more of that drug. 
Give me more sex, right? Give me more stuff, whatever it might be. I need pleasure. You have never experienced exquisite, real pleasure until you get into the presence of an awesome God. That's pleasure. That's pleasure. And so here's how we're going to end this today. We're going to end this today by asking you to respond to the Lord. And I'm going to be upfront with everybody. 